right, thanks, Rachel, for reading that. Thank you guys for that brief uh, financial update. We are in uh, the book of Genesis, if you've been following along. Um, we have been in the midst of a series um, we have been calling Walking by Faith. And if you're new, and uh, by way of recap, we are kind of coming in to the climax of the story in these next couple of weeks here. But if you've been following Abraham's faith journey, uh, God called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, out of this pagan context, and uh, promised him that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Pretty big promise back in Genesis chapter 12. And then as the story unfolds, we learn that those blessings are going to flow through his descendants, through his lineage. Uh, But there's a problem. Abraham and his wife are not able to have children. And so we have the problem in the story, the, uh, uh, the conflict that emerges in the narrative. And, uh, you know, the suspense is building kind of in the story. How is God going to fulfill his uh, promises? And this suspense deepens in chapter 18 um, when God himself promised that Abraham and Sarah would have a child before the year was out. As Abraham is 100, Sarah is 90, um, God promises they are finally going to have the children, child of the promise. So if you've been following the story, you should kind of be at the edge of your seat this morning. When is God actually going to fulfill his promise? When's God going to do what he said he's going to do? But once again, on the very brink of the fulfillment of the promise, Abraham jeopardizes the whole plan. And if this sermon feels a little bit like deja vu, you're not crazy. This, uh, this story uh, we saw repeated from Genesis chapter 12, right? As Abraham begins his journey of faith, right? All the way back at the beginning, 25 years ago, this same story happened, right? Abraham said, yeah, she's my sister. And Sarah ended up in Pharaoh's uh, harem and uh, God had to bail him out. And so here we are once again. I was tempted to title this sermon, Oops, I Did It Again, after that uh, prolific pop star from the 90s. But then I figured I would just be dating myself and so I thought I should probably avoid that. But it's fitting, isn't it? I mean, here we are, Abraham doing the same embarrassing thing all over again. And laughing aside, This text presents us with a rather serious question, doesn't it? Uh, What happens when we relapse in our faith journey? Or maybe to put it another way, uh, what happens or what sense can we make of of recurring sin in our lives? What do we do with these kind of stories? The patriarch, the great man of faith, you know, falling back into the same sin over again. Uh, How do we wrestle with that in our own lives, right? Because we've all been there to one degree or another. And so to answer that question, you know, I want to look more closely at three things. I want to look more closely at Abraham's relapse. What's happening here? Uh, What's this recurring sin that we see in his life? I want to look at God's intervention and and Abimelech's innocence. And uh, finally, Abraham's true identity. So as we go through the story, I hope we're going to be able to answer that question for you. What do we do with recurring sin in our lives? What do we do with those relapses that we find uh, so often? And my aim for this morning's sermon is that we'd see that God uses even our relapses to refine us in our faith journey. God is using these failures uh, to even further deepen Abraham's faith for the biggest test coming up in Genesis 
22. God loves Abraham far too much to leave him in the midst of his sin and struggle uh, and is going to be intervening once again in his life. So let's pray as we dive into our text this morning. Uh, Father, we are painfully aware of our own relapses in faith. Maybe some of us can uh, recall them just driving here to church this morning, or maybe sometime this week there was a moment in your life or my life where, you know, we saw those struggles with recurring sin emerge once again. And so this morning, would you show us how even in our weakness and our failures, uh, God, you use these things as part of our faith journey. Would you help us to take the next steps in our faith journey, and when you get all the glory, uh, God, as you transform lives and continue to grow us in faith. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So so let's start by looking at Abraham's relapse there in verses 1 through 2. We see this story being uh, replayed yet again in chapter 20, 1 and 2. From there, Abraham journeyed, sat towards the territory of the Negev, and lived between Kadesh and and sure, and he journeyed in Gerar. And Abram said to Sarah's wife, She is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And so we have this repetition going on of chapter 12. Once again, Abraham is journeying south towards the Negev. It's the identical phrase in Hebrew of 12 2. Abraham is going south. This is the narrator's way of saying it's all downhill from here in the story as Abraham is heading south, right? This is not a good situation. And once again, Abraham adopts the ploy that Sarah is his sister while hiding the important fact, the relevant fact, the very necessary fact that she also happens to be his wife. Abraham is afraid, as many of us find ourselves in various circumstances, afraid that these kings will kill him and take his beautiful wife which was definitely a very real possibility. In the ancient Near East, you know, powerful kings could do what they wanted. Saw a beautiful woman, they would just take her. Particularly if you were a wandering kind of immigrant, you didn't have a lot of rights, you didn't have a lot of, uh, you couldn't appeal that verdict. And so Abraham, in one sense, right, I mean, his fear is not like, it's not total paranoia. This this could legitimately happen to him. And he's not technically lying either. His his wife is also his half-sister. And so we have those facts to consider. But once again, this fear that Abraham still hasn't dealt with 25 years later, right, is going to get him into a lot of trouble, right? The sins in our lives, right, that we kind of hold on to, they're going to get us into a lot of trouble if we don't deal with them. And this time, God is going to intervene once again in the life of Abraham as he stops in Gerar. Instead of going all the way down to Egypt, he goes down to the city of Gerar. And Gerar was an important caravan city between Canaan and Egypt, And it was the royal city where King Abimelech reigned. And so kind of right between Egypt, which would be to the south, and Canaan to the north, uh, Abraham is going to get his next lesson in the life of faith. And uh, what's interesting, of course, uh, we wonder, like, how could a 90-year-old woman be be causing any attraction here or be entering into some other man's harem and all? And many of the commentators think at this point, Sarah's pretty old. Um, She herself said in Jack in chapter 18 that she was old and worn out. Uh, that what was going on here was maybe not like the fact that she's like dazzling in her beauty at this point, but that perhaps Sarah uh, at this point was more of an important key to an alliance between Abraham, this powerful patriarch and this king here of the city of Gerar. And so probably this marriage would have cemented a strategic alliance, political alliance, economic alliance, uh, that kind of thing. And so that is why Abimelech wants to bring Sarah into his 
harem. Uh, but whatever the circumstances, whatever the situation, this is incredibly bad news for God's promise because God has just promised, right, that he is going to give Abraham and Sarah a son who's going to carry forward, right, all of God's blessings to all the nations. And if Sarah has been married to another man, God's promises are going to be forfeited, and that is going to be the end of the story. So Sarah finds herself here in the opening scene in a foreign king's harem for the second time in her life. And can you imagine how she's feeling? Here we are again. (laughs) Another foreign king's harem, just like, what is going on here? I mean, just the thoughts running through this woman's mind at this point. And can you imagine what's running through Abraham's thoughts at this point? It's like, oh my gosh, I just, my wife is now in another man's harem for the second time. Like, can you imagine just the colossal feelings of like failure and defeat and just crushing uh, this guy as all of God's promises seem to be coming down around him, all based on his own fear and his own struggle. And before we get uh, to God's intervention and Abimelech's innocence, which play uh, significantly into God's grace in this story, I think it's important to pause and reflect here. I don't, have you been in a situation recently where a brother or sister in their faith like relapsed and you've had to deal with the consequences, right? Have you had to walk alongside somebody struggling in uh, recurring sin in their lives and you just get to feel how that is coming out at you maybe in different sideways directions and you just feel like, gosh, this is so frustrating and so weighty or uh, maybe to be a bit more personal, what sins are a recurring problem in your life? What are the areas where you see sin just popping up again and again in your lives. I think we feel this uh, really poignantly when we're in close proximity to other people, right? When we enter into relationships, right? You all of a sudden are in that wonderful roommate situation. You've got these amazing people that you're going to be living the most amazing season of your life as a college student. It's going to be so exciting, so dynamic, just one massive long party. And then you're like, oh, no, these are people, and they have problems. And you're dealing with all the issues that roommates deal with. Or you get married, and you think this person is going to complete me. They're going to be my soulmate. And then you're like, oh, they're driving me crazy for various reasons. Or you have kids. God blesses you with these beautiful, sweet little angels. And then they end up getting into all these crazy situations where you're just, they just drive you nuts. And you've been there, right? We're, we're, we're there, right? We, we know what the struggle is like. Um, one of my favorite stories of this, favorite stories now that I'm past this situation, is, is with our youngest, uh, Sam. Sam had an incredible fixation with toilets from a very early age. <laughs> this was a child that loved toilets. Any store we went to, Anywhere, he would stop. First stop, he had to go to the bathroom, check out the toilet. And not just toilets, anywhere at, you know, Walmart or Target or, like, Costco. or But I mean, like, the porta-potties, like, at the state fair or whatever. I mean, you're going to the apple orchard. He was going to the porta-potties, and he was going to be hanging out. And not only did he like the porta-potties, you know, he liked regular toilets. He liked to flush things down them. Things like pens, pencils, silverware, toys, action figures, all of those sorts of things. And this went on for like a year or two of his life. Almost drove me to the brink of insanity as I had to pull action figures out of the toilet and various situations. And I can laugh at that because Sam has gotten past this very unhealthy, not only gross hygienic phase of his life, but incredibly destructive to our plumbing system. You know, thankfully, and we laugh at that, but like our grown-up problems, of course, get only more complicated from there, right? 
our actual difficulty, struggles with addiction or struggles with depression or struggles with overwhelming fear or anxiety, like, you know, we can laugh because those little kids, you know, they can get through, you know, through some care and training and discipline and proper (laughs) grace, you know, expressed, they can make it through those situations. But as we get older, the problems only get more difficult, more challenging, and more uh, complex. So how do we respond to these relapses of faith, to these recurring patterns of sin? It's instructive to see how God responds to Abraham here in our text in uh, Genesis 20. Two things are really striking here in verses 3 Uh, through 16. Both God's intervention, which God is constantly intervening in his grace, and also Abimelech's innocence, which is interesting, because here's this pagan king that gets caught up in Abraham's sin, and yet we see a very striking note of innocence struck here. So let's look briefly at these two uh, interventions here. First, once again, God steps in to save the day. So in verse 13, uh, we read, um, or verse 3, I should say, not verse 13, Uh, Abraham has just uh, said she's my sister. Abimelech has just taken her into his harem. And in verse 3, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And so God steps in to bail him out again, which we've got to just love and celebrate the grace of our God to come in and bail this patriarch out once again. I mean, it's like, if you touch her, you're as good as a dead man. Like, God is stepping in to save the day. God is extending his grace to Abraham. Once again, Abraham failed lesson one back in chapter 12. He has failed the same lesson here in chapter 20. But God is determined to teach this fearful patriarch how to walk by faith. Notice that he doesn't use guilt or shame. He doesn't say, this time, Abraham, you are on your own. Good luck with this thing. Good luck getting your wife out of this, this man's harem. No, God responds in grace again and again. Derek Kidner, the the commentator, says it this way. This episode is chiefly one of suspense. On the brink of Isaac's birth story, here is the very promise put in jeopardy, traded away for personal safety. If it is ever to be fulfilled, it will owe very little to man. Morally as well as physically, it will clearly have to be achieved by the grace of God. Of God. I love that, right? Morally, physically, whatever, this salvation is going to have to be achieved by the grace of God. God extends grace not to excuse or trivialize Abraham's sin, but to teach him how to live by faith. God is also uh, protecting his covenant promises, right? If God promised to bless all the family, others was left completely up to Abraham, right? He would be totally screwed, right? (laughs) The whole situation would go down in flames. It would have crashed and burned back in Genesis 12, and it would have crashed and burned again here in Genesis 20. But God is committed to carrying out his covenant promises through to completion, and he's not going to let Abraham's relapses get in the way of that. Remember, it was God alone who walked between the animals in the covenant ceremony back in Genesis 15. It is God who continues to uphold his covenant promises. He continues to protect this fearful patriarch. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's the kind of God we serve. And I hope that is wonderful good news for you this morning, good news to all of us that struggle with sin, even the recurring sins in our lives, right? We're in good company, right? We're struggling along with Abraham, the man of faith who repeatedly struggles to figure out what it looks like to follow 
Jesus. But that doesn't mean these are easy lessons, right? Learning from our own mistakes is always more difficult than doing things God's way, right? right? When we go down this path, right, into sin, we're not making lives easier. It feels that way. Like, if I just give in and do this, it'll feel so much better. We're actually, we're going to learn those lessons, but they're going to be a lot more painful and a lot more difficult. While God's grace is striking in this text, Abimelech's innocence only serves to highlight Abraham's guilt. Abimelech is a pagan king, right? But apparently when it comes to other men's wives, he's a man of integrity. Uh, We read on the story in verses 4 through 8 these words. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. In other words, he's not had actual sexual relations with her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done it in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. This is a remarkable response, isn't it? I mean, the narrator is going over and beyond to prove his innocence. He records Abimelech's profession of innocence, and God says, I know, you're innocent. You didn't have anything to do. This is on Abraham, right? Where Abraham writes, where is it there's no fear of God in this city? Um, Abimelech and his whole household are very afraid. I mean, when they hear a word from the Lord, they respond. They are receptive and soft to what God would have them to say. And not only is Abimelech fearful, I mean, he actually acts on it. He challenges Abraham, says, Abraham, why'd you do this to me, man? Like, you know, why did you lie to me? And Abraham then explains that this has been his pattern. This has been an MO throughout his life. In verse, uh, we see this in verse eight, or as we're going down through here. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said, why have you done this? And why have you sinned against? So they brought the sin. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, this is verse 11, I did it because I thought there was no fear of God in all this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place which we come, say of me, he is my brother. And so this is not like an isolated instance. Abraham has this pattern of sin in his life. When he has fear, when he goes to new places, when he experiences new people, he tells his wife continually over and over again, puts her in harm's way to protect himself. This is a pattern of sin that has been exposed in Abraham's life in Genesis 12. It's been exposed here in Genesis chapter 20. And Abimelech is like, what are you doing, man? Like, you're supposed to be a prophet from God, and here you are lying about your own wife. You know, not trusting the sovereign God of the universe. Abimelech is a striking contrast. He's like this innocent, righteous guy. He's like, Abraham, what on earth are you doing? You're supposed to be a follower of the true and living God. And Abimelech's conduct over and over again highlights, uh, again, you know, it's a contrast to Abraham, right? He gives Abraham gifts. You know, he returns uh, Abraham's wife untouched. He gives him flocks and herds, pays out a thousand pieces of silver, which would have been a small fortune, Uh, The whole point of this elaborate narrative is to contrast Abimelech's innocence with Abraham's recurring sin, which is pretty humbling, right? Abraham is supposed to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, but here he is endangering uh, a king and his people. And have you ever found yourself in that humbling position? You're supposed to be the Christian at work, 
and you get busted, right, for cutting corners, for lying or for cheating. You're supposed to be this witness for God, you know, the salt of the earth, the city on a hill. And as a Christian, you find yourself the one uh, that is, in fact, exposed for not doing the work that you're called to do. Right? Sometimes people with no religious affiliation or different religious affiliations can be people of higher integrity than we are. And that shouldn't surprise us, right? We all grow up in different contexts, backgrounds, and uh, genetic inclinations, right? So it's really unhelpful to compare ourselves to others, right? Some people grow up with all the advantages of a stable family, strong social network, and a sunny disposition, and others grow up with none of those advantages, right? That's why we shouldn't be comparing ourselves to others, but who we are by nature and who we can become by grace, right? We all have a certain hand that we've been dealt by nature and nurture, but we all have opportunities to grow by grace, and that's what we see here in our text. And uh, no one understood this better than the slave trader turned pastor, John Newton. You know, the guy who wrote that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. He famously said this. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Uh, I love that quote. Here's a man that was a slave trader, I mean, the worst possible career, worst possible profession, who grew up with all the disadvantages of growing up in poverty, you know, just trying to work hand to foot, trying to support himself in the worst sort of way. Uh, But a man who experienced God's grace profoundly was transformed into a pastor, hymn writer, one of the most prolific hymn writers uh, we have. And the theme of this man's life was grace. Grace is the only thing that can break the death spiral of guilt and shame, caused by recurring relapses in our faith. Grace fosters a culture where it's safe to come out of hiding and get health. And by God's grace, we take those first faltering steps of faith towards life and health and growth. In fact, our relapses of faith and recurring sins are actually reveal the next steps in our faith journey. God is not content to leave Abraham in this pathetic and fearful state, but exposes his fear so that he can so that it can be addressed and overcome, so that he can continue in his faith journey. Uh, God does the same thing in our lives. Right? Our recurring sins reveal the next step in our faith journey. Right? God loves us too much to leave us in our sin, so he exposes these sin patterns, these areas of sin in our lives, so that we can actually uh, live into, in a life of faith, ways that would be overcoming, growing through. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer bound by its power. God wants to set us free, and so even the exposure of our sin, even those recurring sins, the most shameful recurrent sins in our lives, even the most difficult, hard ways in which we relapse and we fall into doubt and fear, those very sins are where God wants to meet us. That's exactly where God meets this patriarch. (laughs) 100-year-old guy, right? You should know better by now. 25 years to work on this whole fear struggle, and yet God in his grace is still walking, still pursuing this man's heart by grace. So God demonstrates his grace to Abraham, his commitment to his covenant promises, and finally uh, reinforces Abraham's true identity. And again, just briefly here, um, we see this in verse 7, and we see this again in verse 17 and verse 7, um, God says that Abraham's a prophet. In verse 17, we see him actually acting like one. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. 
Through his faith journey, God is seeking to reinforce Abraham's true identity. Who he is? He's a prophet of the Most High God. This is a man through whom God's blessings are supposed to go to the entire earth, right? God tells Abimelech that Abraham's a prophet, and Abimelech probably chuckled a little bit. Who is this prophet that's like, you know, can't even be honest about like, you know, his own wife here? And yet God's like, this is, this is a prophet. This is who he is. He's going to be my bearer of blessings to all the families in the earth. And by the end of the chapter, verse 17 that I just read, Abraham is actually acting like a prophet, right? He's praying for Abimelech and seeing the miraculous healing happen, wombs open throughout his household, which must have been pretty remarkable to Abraham, who's been praying for wombs to be open, one specific one, his wife Sarah, for the last 25 years. And then here God goes, just opens up. Yep, all the wombs, everyone's healed there in, in uh, Abimelech's household, uh, foreshadowing a little bit of the story for next week. But I'll leave that one to Josh. What I want you to see here is that Abraham is what theologians call a flawed type or picture of Christ. Here's a man who has messed up in the most egregious way by endangering his own wife, endangering God's promises, uh, and all to preserve his own sin twice. Uh, but here at the end of their text, Abraham is able to give us just a glimpse into the heart of our Savior to intercede on behalf of the lost, right? Where Abraham can exonerate Abimelech of all wrongdoing, pray for Abimelech, and offer healing to his household, right? Jesus comes uh, with a much more comprehensive mission to extend his extravagant grace to the lost, hurting, and helpless. Jesus' death and resurrection bring hope for healing to even our most stubborn and recurring sins. And Jesus' high priestly prayer offers us an invitation to a new way of life, a new way to be human. What Jesus is doing, right, what Abraham is doing here in just this little miniature portrait, this little picture of intercession for this pagan king is just a pointer. It's just a window into the ministry of Christ that's going to massively expand uh, this little little window we see in Abraham's life. So how do we put ourselves in the path of God's grace? How can we rehearse God's promises? How can we reinforce our new identity in Christ? In this story, God's grace comes to Abraham before he does anything, right? Right in the midst, in fact, of his sin, God meets him with grace. And God often delights to do that very thing in our lives. Uh, But as mature followers of Jesus, we know that there are also tried and true ways to keep God's grace front and center in our everyday lives. We don't just have to stumble into sin to experience God's grace, uh, we can find the paths that actually lead us there. Uh, David Mathis describes these tried and true ways as habits of grace in his book by that same title. He says this in Habits of Grace, it is in this endless sea of grace that we walk the path of the Christian life and take steps of grace, empowered effort and initiative. It works something like this. I can flip a switch, but I don't produce the electricity. I could turn on a faucet, but I don't make the water flow. There will be no light and no liquid refreshment without someone else providing it. And so it is with the Christian, with the ongoing grace of God. His grace is essential for our spiritual lives, but we don't control the supply. We can't make the favor of God flow, but he has given us circuits to connect and pipes to open expectantly. There are paths along which he has promised his favor. I love that. And he goes on to say, as we've celebrated above, our God is lavish in his grace. He is free to liberally dispense his goodness without even the least bit of cooperation and preparation on our part. And often as he does, and we see that in our text this morning. 
but he also has his regular channels. And we can routinely avail ourselves of these revealed paths of blessing or neglect them to our detriment, right? right? God's grace comes to us in lavish, unexpected ways within the midst of our sin and our struggle, our weaknesses and our failures, but God has also ordained means of grace for us to experience that in the midst of our everyday lives, to strengthen us in the fight against sin and the struggles that we have. He mentions uh, three habits, three clusters of habits, habits centered around the word, our time in the word, being centered on the word, growing in the word, meditating on the word, reading the word, studying the word, uh, practices or habits centered around prayer, uh, where we spend time deeply uh, pursuing God's heart in prayer, and then practices centered around fellowship, practices around inviting other people into our lives to experience the change that happens as we do life together in community. And that's why opportunities like gathering with God's people on Sunday morning are so transformative. We get God's word together. We get opportunities to pray. and We get opportunities to spend time with each other. It's a very powerful, significant, formative thing to be together with God's people on Sunday morning, uh, celebrating God's goodness and kindness. Um, that's why LTGs are a really powerful thing. Those of you who jumped into life transformation groups, you know how powerful it is to not just hear the word or read the word, but to have other people pray for you, other people encourage you, challenge you, share their stories of growth and strength. That's why we do our prayer things on Sunday nights. We want you to be able to experience God's word and prayer and community together. Uh, but ultimately, right, if you're going to grow, right, you're going to need to develop some of those habits in your own life. If you're going to beat those recurring patterns of sin and struggle, uh, those ruts that you seem to fall into, you're going to have to develop habits of God's grace to bring God's grace into the here and now, into the life around us. These habits help remind us that God's grace, which, is, which we so desperately need in our recurrence of sin, right? Because shame and guilt will send us far running away from God. We're going to have to be reminded of God's grace. These habits help sustain and strengthen us in our faith journey, right? They unleash God's power in our lives. And ultimately, these habits help us know and enjoy Jesus, which is kind of the goal of the whole Christian faith. And so uh, hopefully you've gotten exposure to God's grace this morning, an invitation to enter into some of these habits of grace. Uh, and I want to close maybe with one final image for you of God's pursuit in this. If you came this morning and you're just discouraged, you're like, man, I'm stuck in these patterns of sin and shame and guilt and struggle and wonder, will I ever get out? Uh, I wanted to give you uh, one final portrait that just shows the heart of our God. Um, and I I take it from C.S. Lewis. I was able to uh, uh, go out and see C.S. Lewis's great divorce live at DeVos Place as a pastor's appreciation gift, which was pretty amazing and uh, an incredible experience. And so I felt like I had to close with the proper C.S. Lewis quote or image today to, to drive home God's work in our hearts, particularly in these hard, difficult, intractable sins. I couldn't find a good one from the great divorce, so I, st- I stole one from the problem of pain. So I'm going to close with this, and then we'll We'll pray and we'll gather around time around the Lord's Supper. Lewis says this here. I I hope you just read this as you look at the struggle and the sin in your life. Catch the vision for where God wants to take you. We are not metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art. Something that God is making and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. Here again, we come up against what I call the intolerable compliment. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it is not exactly what it is meant to be. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, though in a different fashion, is intensely 
As a man loves a woman or a mother a child, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient. One can imagine a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. I think what we see in this text is God's passionate commitment Uh, to press into the painful areas in Abraham's life. He's not going to let Abraham off the hook. He has a plan that he's going to bless all the nations of the earth through him. And God has that same plan in each of our lives. He is going to form us into the image of Jesus sooner or later. (laughs) You know, ultimately, he will get us there by glory. He's going to take all the efforts and pain to get there. So I pray as you walk through those difficult seasons of doubt, recurring sin, and struggle in your life, that you'd walk away recognizing God's commitment, his grace towards you, and then stepping in to those beautiful habits of God's grace that can help keep his grace front and center in your lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Abraham. We thank you for the way that even his failures, um, even his recurring sins, God, uh, are an opportunity to showcase more of your grace Uh, That even in his sin and his struggles, God, you continue to pursue this man. You continue to shape him into the patriarch that we are still getting to read about today, Uh, the man of faith. Would you do that work, continue to do that work in each of us? Would your grace uh, be on display? Would it be available this morning? Uh, Father, would we pursue it? Would we receive it by faith? God, and would you change lives, would you transform lives, form us into this beautiful work of art that you have for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.